Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 211 for August 27, 2009. Hacking Electronic Voting Machines. Security Now is brought to you by Go to My PC. The safe way to access your PC remotely that's as secure as online banking. For your free 30-day trial, visit gotomypc.com slash security now. And by Carbonite, the leader in online backup. Back up your PC or Mac off-site, securely and automatically. For a free trial offer plus two free months with purchase, go to carbonite.com, offer code TWIT. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all the things you need to know about keeping yourself secure on the Internet. Our guru of security, the man in charge, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. Steve is a security whiz, the man who discovered spyware, coined the term, has written many useful free security utilities, and has done this show for four years on our fifth year now. Steve, good to see you. Yes, and today it's the security of, or lack of security of voting. Oh, man, is that a topic? Oh, and this is going to upset people, Leo. I mean, this is, this is pretty scary stuff. Um, you know, we've been, nobody's proposing that we do electronic voting, are they? Well, we have electronic voting. For oh, the this last- is the stuff we're using now, the Diebold stuff? Yeah. Um, in, in this case, they're machines from Sequoia, which have been um, reverse engineered. And we're going to look this week at, in detail at what the vulnerability was and how it was leveraged into a demonstration that allows vote stealing in, in, the, in this class of machine. And and so the problem is, I mean, you know, everyone's concerned about like internet voting. Uh, you know, whoa, slow down. We know we don't want to go there yeah. with viruses and malware and everything. Well, we're not but talking about is, that. Yeah, this is um, the machines where you interact with them electronically, spinning a dial, pressing a button, whatever. You know, some people have paper printed sheets where they're like we used to do tests in college, where you 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 use a number whatever it is, number three pencil, and fill in this, the, the dot, and then they just use basically an optical mark reader in right. order to tell That's how we vote. vote. That's how California votes, right? Well, not down here in Southern California. I've, I'm looking at an LCD screen oh. with a big wheel, and I spin the wheel oh. and then punch the – and it's all electronic. Oh, so you have these machines. Well, yes, there are – and like the Diebold and Sequoia, there are all kinds of different machines – um, these particular machines uh, are still in use. That well, yeah, currently in use. I don't think after this report gets a lot of air, uh, anyone's going to feel comfortable using them. But I'll tell the story of of how they were procured and and when and and where they're in use. Mm. And um, I really think this is going to be interesting for people because using some some good reverse engineering techniques, but a lot of computer fundamental computer technology that we're going to go into um, in this hour, um, it turns out it's possible for someone to sneak in the night before, play some games with each machine, 
and leave them in a state such that they no longer accurately record the votes that they are registered through their UI. Oh, man. It's bad. Well, before we do that, I just we want to welcome a new sponsor of the show. Yay. Yeah, yeah we always like that. Car- <laughs> Carbonite. And I've, I, I have to fix my uh, lower third because I said it's the Piffer code. It's an offer code. <laughs> Not a Piffer code. Leo, to get to Carbonite for free. Let me tell you a little bit about what Carbonite is. You know, we talk about backup. That's part of security too, right? Backup is your last resort. If everything goes wrong, at least you've got a clean backup. But how many people really do backup? And for those of you who do, do you have off-site backups? Steve and I have talked about the fact that he, you still do this, mails DVDs to his mom? Yep. <laughs> I've got complete copies. She, she says, what do I do with these? Just hold on to them, mom. Don't worry about it. And that's because if, you know, look, we live in earthquake country here in California. Many of you might live in hurricane country. We've got hurricanes hitting the coast right now up in the, the Maritimes. Fire can happen to anybody. Flood. And that's what you got to worry about. That's when you not only lose your uh, original data, but you could lose your backup, too, if it's sitting right next to it. Thieves. So you've got to have off-site backup. Otherwise, you're just really not backed up. Carbonite makes it very easy to do. You put Carbonite on your machine, Mac or PC, instantly it starts backing up your critical data to the Internet. Your photos, your music, your financial documents, your email. It just trickles it up to the Internet. You might worry about security. You don't have to. I know anybody who listens to this show is aware of security issues. It uses AES encryption, 256-bit AES encryption on the data before it even gets to the Internet, and then uses SSL to send it to the Carbonite server. So it's double encrypted. That means your privacy is also protected. Nobody can see it. You're the only one who has access to it. And the beauty of Carbonite is it's unlimited backup for less than $5 a month, fifty-four ninety-five a year unlimited so you don't have to think about how much you've got this is great for a laptop too people lose laptops like crazy Six hundred thousand laptops lost or stolen at u.s airports every year <laughs> every year and only three percent of those are recovered carbonite for your laptop for your kids going off to school for your important financial records this is the way to back up i want you to try it right now go to carbonite.com enter the offer code twit t-w-i-t you could try it free and it, if you do that and you like it and you decide to sign up, you get two months free once once you use the offer code TWIT. So sign up with the offer code TWIT. C-A-R-B-O-N-I-T-E, Carbonite. It's backup done right. you got to have it off-site or it's just not backed up. And not everybody has the, the uh, determination and patience you do, Steve, to burn DVDs. <laughs> if you do, be my guest. Do it. <laughs> That's another way. Uh, I just find that if I don't, if I don't have something going in the background, I'm not going to do it. I just well, I, yeah, I've got that too. I'm, I'm using, in my case, the Amazon, you know, you use AWS. Has, yeah. 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 That's another way to do it. And, and, and with jungle disc, right? We talked about. Jungle yes. Disc. Yeah. Although I tell you the, I like the idea of just don't have to worry about how much data you just pay a right. fixed fee and right. you've got access to, you know, storage in the cloud. As I now say. have so much backed up on jungle disc. I do pay more than five bucks a month easily. Yeah. Um, this is really for somebody who, just, you know, and you, maybe people who listen to this show are sophisticated, won't need it. But, if, you know, you set up your mom with this. You can't, you know, this is what you want for somebody who's just, you know, I don't want to think about it. I just want it to be there when I leave it. So let's talk. Do we have security updates, security news? Yeah, we have some and a, and a little bit of errata. Um, uh, and I have sort of a fun, different spin right story than I've ever told before. Um, it was a very quiet week in security. 
thank goodness we have one every so often, um, I only have two items. One is just sort of strange. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has begun enforcing a policy which bans the use of any web browser other than Microsoft's Internet Explorer. Want me to say that again? <laughs> I'm stunned. It's it's a it, there's a uh, one of their units the 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 Cooperative State Research Education and Extension Service. They say that they've that they are following the so-called Federal Desktop Core Configuration Guide, um, which is a 2008 government-wide policy administered by the Office of Management and Budget, the OMB which requires that agencies standardize operating system and browser settings to prevent security breaches. And so their logic is that Internet Explorer is the only browser which allows remote configuration and lockdown and management. So they have, I mean, this policy's been around, but it hasn't been enforced. They're now enforcing it, removing any non-IE browser, specifically Firefox, was mentioned in the news story. What? Um, because well, I understand standardizing because then you can have standard policies and procedures. So if you have a bunch of different browsers, maybe they don't want to support them all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. I mean, now this caused a lot of of, of problems. For one thing, they maintain websites, and so their webmasters. Oh are no longer able to use non-IE browsers, which visitors to their website use. You can't validate them. Exactly. They were depending upon using these other browsers to make sure that their sites worked in non-IE browsers. So it's not clear how this is going to fall out. But And, and, and people have said, wait a minute, you know, the, does the federal desktop core configuration specify that you can only use IE? And the answer is no, it doesn't. So... It's feeling like there's been some overzealousness on the part of the IT people in this Cooperative State Research Education and Extension Service. But at the moment, that's the policy, and, and people are not, no longer able to use anything but IE, which is, you know, we know how we feel about IE. I mean, I'd be really chagrined if, if anyone told me I couldn't use Firefox because I'm, frankly, due to the add-ons and the additional features and controls I have – I can do much more with Firefox. I have more control over over my internet usage experience and, frankly, more security than if I'm using IE. And that's because you use no script and stuff. But, I mean, if people use, you, you for a long time used IE and, I did. and, and believed it could be made secure, and that was well, that was been a long time ago. Yes, I, I went – I had to jump through hoops, though. I used IE's zone system, and I, I locked down the – the internet zone, and then I manually added sites that I trusted to my trusted zone, and those had less security associated with them. So it was it was possible to do, but Firefox just makes it much easier. So it's not only no script, but for example, I, I use um, a little cookie manager that allows me to have all my cookies treated as session cookies, so they're forgotten constantly, unless I say, oh, this is one where when I come back, I want to be remembered. Like I want to, leave, I want to have eBay remember and, and PayPal and so forth so I don't have to go through all the, the login every time. So it's done on a, on a selective basis. But again, you know, the, I, it, it's, it seems to me like a real step backwards for any, any government agency to mandate the use of one 
uh, of any one browser. It's if for, for no other reason as a lack of choice where choice, you know, enhances security instead of limiting it. But from a management standpoint, I can see that it's you know it's tough to 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 support something as as heterogeneous as you know our PC industry has become. Yeah. It's the other bit it's just of the news, agriculture department, though it's not government wide, right? Just USDA, and it's just actually it's just even it's just a unit of the USDA. So not even all of the Department of Agriculture, uh, who has a somewhat less than illustrious security um, history themselves. So it's just this one group, and you know maybe this is going to shine a bright light on it, and then you know the powers that be will say, wait a minute, this is you know this was a mistake, yeah. but. The moment it did, it did float up to the top of the security news for the week. The other thing just came across the radar from uh, from a, a report that I'm a, I'm a little I'm certainly interested, but I'm a little skeptical. Um, the original story is in the German version of the Financial Times, which you know I can't read, um, but it was picked up and reported by the Register. Um, the you know the register.co.uk, they're you know they've got a lot of good news. They're a little sketchy sometimes. They tend to be a little flamboyant and and loose with the facts. So I'm and I haven't seen this anywhere else. I looked for it. I couldn't find anybody else picking up on it. But the news is that the Chaos Computer Club, which is an established known hacking group, um, have said that within a month or two, they will issue a public demo and release code so that anyone equipped with a laptop and an antenna can listen to GSM phone calls. And the story is that GSM has been cracked. Wow. Now, <laughs> you know, it's funny because we were talking about this, I think, in a Q&A either last week or a couple of weeks ago, where someone was asking, you know, am I secure with using um, a, a cellular broadband connection? And I was saying that, yeah, probably, but that this is old encryption that was, that was based on shift register technology to generate pseudo-random bit streams, which are XORed with the plain text to create ciphertext, and that, that, the the they were relying on trade secret information, not disclosing the the lengths of these different you know they're they're like prime number length shift registers that 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 spin around their outputs are XORed into the final bitstream and that that creates this um, the encrypted text and at the other end the same pattern is used to decrypt it you know we're under, we we're well versed now our security now listeners in in the notion of a pseudo-random data stream being XORed with exclusive ORD with the plain text to create ciphertext. Well, this has apparently been cracked. So um, I just wanted to, to raise that note. I will keep track of this, and I'm sure if this is the case, it's going to surface on a lot of other security sites and will make a, m- a lot more news. This just happened, and, wow. and I went to the, the Financial Times article but saw that it was all in German and said, well, okay, let's, you know, wait for other people to translate this. I would feel more comfortable knowing, you know, seeing the details of what this Chaos Computer Club um, is claiming. And the register tended to be a little more 
um, effervescent about it than than I would like. Yeah, yeah. But you know, uh, this will certainly be big news if, uh, depending upon you know what flavor and and level of GSM has been cracked, this is um this is not good. Yeah, because I'm GSM. I'm sure you are. I mean, GSM is T-Mobile and AT&T. It's everybody with an iPhone. It's not Verizon or Sprint. Correct. That's uh, CDMA. them. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Wow. And then uh, my little bit of errata is I did want to just put on the radar for our sci-fi fans that Apple uh, now has on their site, uh, apple.com, trailers for... The upcoming James Cameron movie in December, yeah, Avatar. People are really excited about this. And oh, Leo! I mean, it looks a little bit too much like unicorns and fairies to me. You know, from the from there the, is that element. It's weird. Yes, it's and so I was thinking. Well, Mark Thompson, who likes those things, he'll probably get a kick out of that. But it also looked like it's good sci-fi as well. So. Have yeah. you seen the trailer? No, um, I'm gonna. I'm going right now to Apple. Yeah, it's, 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 I've heard a little bit about it. He's one of the things that he's kind of interested in doing is um, uh, he believes all movies will be CGI soon, right? So a lot of this is is fully computer generated. Yes, the, the, it, it, he's um, he's mixing live actors and 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 CG. Tr- I mean, substantially, and that's my. I guess if I had a complaint, it's that from from this preview that it looks like it's I a cartoon in some it areas. It does. Yeah. It looks a little cartoony. It's not. It doesn't have the the you know just that 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 real edge that that we're used to seeing. But I think it's because he's had to bring in. I mean, like these are not the, these sets that they're on don't exist. They're, they're all, all synthetic yeah. sets. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, this anyway. is the future of movie making. You know, I don't know if it's the time. You know, he's by the way, James Cameron also thinks all movies will be three D soon. So <laughs> he's kind of bought in, bought into this whole uh, this whole notion. I, I guess he, there's stuff you can do in 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 CGI that you you just can't do any other way. Yeah, I mean, there's a scene in the trailer where a little helicopter is flying in this large space with sort of really neat sort of floating dirt mountains. Right. Um, and you know, I don't know how you do that except to yeah. to do it all in yeah. in computer generated imagery. So, yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't know. Have you seen any of the new 3D movies? I've not. No, and, so I don't... and I can't because I have mono vision. I don't have. Uh... So your brain doesn't merge the yeah. two. So I naturally. can't. I can't really tell. Yeah. Uh, 3D, unfortunately. So I will never appreciate it. I hope it doesn't take off because then it means I'm not going to enjoy movies much anymore. They better provide a 1D or 2D version for, for oldsters like me. It'll be interesting. The The problem is I know that there's a, a Final Destination movie coming out in 3D. I liked the Final Destination movies. They had something about the plot lines. This sort of appealed to me. But this one is, you know, it's that where the... The, the car tire is smacking you in the face. I mean, you know, right. it's it's overdone. It's not just right. sort of subtle where you, you can forget that it's 3D and find yourself immersed in it. Instead, they're taking advantage of, like, you know, poking sticks out of the screen at you. And right. where you're, you're I don't like that. It's gimmicky no. when they do yeah. that. It's gimmicky. Exactly. But I guess he feels, and he, he's probably right, that the future is more, more immersive, more realistic. Uh, and, of course, if you're using computers to generate it, uh, it could be very, very authentic 3D. Well, it could be spectacular. The yeah. problem is that, you know, as we know, in order to generate 3D, you need to give each eye, each of your eyes, its own image. 
and that's been challenging. The 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 you know one approach has been the blue green. I'm sorry, the red blue glasses where yeah. you use tinting of the of the two different images and separate them that way so that one eye sees red that's get fil- that's filtered out by the blue and the other sees blue that's filtered out by the red. Um, but you know then you've got a problem with color. The alternative is to use high speed shuttering where where each eye is is seeing alternative frames on the screen and you know that's very expensive because now the whole audience has to have some sort of electronic gadgetry you know that they're wearing in order to to separate the images so yeah, yeah. challenging by the way somebody pointed out and absolutely I as usual I'm uh, I'm US centric that GSM May only be used by AT and T and T Mobile in the U.S., but it's used worldwide on almost all phone systems. Well, yeah, exactly. It is the it is the global standard. Yeah. So I apologize. Yep. I didn't mean to sound U.S. centric there. Yes, everybody uses it worldwide. And a note was forwarded to me about a month and a half ago that uh, I had actually on my on my Starbucks machine and and wanted to to, to share because it was sort of an interesting story. Uh, it was forwarded to me by Sue, my my office manager bookkeeper from um, someone named Sean. He said, hello, my name is Sean. I went to a flea market and there was a man selling Spinrite for $80. I asked him, how can he sell it? He told me he has a special deal worked out with you. So I bought a copy. Oh boy. It was a few days later when I got home to run the program. And when I did, I saw that it was registered to, and then there's a person's name here, with a serial number of, and then he gives the serial number. And so he was reporting this to our office at our, at our sales um, uh, email account. He says, I drove the 30 miles back to the flea market only him. to find that the person selling what was clearly an illegal copy of Spinrite was gone. I have not used the product. I do not want to do that to you. And you never know if someone has stuffed something extra in it like some bad guys do. The thing that bugs me is that I saved up for three months to get the $80, and I should have just gone to your site, but I did not. Oh, I feel bad. I will destroy this copy and try to save the money again and get it from your site this time. You and Leo are doing a great job. You both provide very useful information that, when followed, will keep us very safe. Thank you to both of you. Well, Sue answered him and said she was sorry to hear what happened and also blind copied me on it because she's known me for 22 years. I know you, too, and I know exactly what you did. (laughs) So I replied. I said, I'm sorry to hear that you were sucked into that scam, and I'm certainly annoyed that some loser is making money from people. He has your $80 by illegally selling our software that was licensed to someone else. But I'm also not happy with the idea of you needing to spend another $89 to purchase a legitimate copy from us. After all, although we do need to sell Spinrite to support everything we do, our cost to develop and support a copy of Spinrite is relatively low. Therefore, in a minute or two, you'll receive a note directly from GRC's e-commerce system which I'm able to securely access from Starbucks thanks to our perfect paper (laughs) password system, which you probably know about from the Security Now podcast. The email you receive will be a receipt for a no-charge copy of Spinrite licensed this time to you by name, and the links in the receipt can be used to download your own personal copy now and forevermore. 
Thanks for your note and for your support of GRC. All the best. Oh, thank you, Steve. I knew I knew that was going to be the end. Oh, I yeah. That's I mean, nice you know, yeah. sound, he is a neat kid, and I appreciated him letting us know that this had happened. And but you know, no way was I going to you know have him save up and buy another copy. So There's nothing you could do about that uh, other copy, I guess. You can't. Well, and I you know th- that's the nature of software. I mean, we we know that it's high margin. We know that someone's going to get stolen and pirated. What happened was, I mean, I we know this copy. We know that person's name. Um, when I first came out with the software distribution system, I was giving people a an encoded URL that they could use forever with the instructions, make sure no, you never let loose of this. People were using download managers, which were, which were behind their back spying on them and reporting the URLs they used for downloading software to a central database. You're kidding. No, this is, this is going on. I mean, download managers are doing this. Oh, my goodness. Do you know which manager it was? I did at the time. This has been years oh, ago that's now. appalling. I, I had no idea. Yeah. They, in fact, there was like the idea was it was supposed to be a service that you could then go to this and see what other people were downloading and use their URLs to, to download it yourself. Oh, my God. And so three or four copies of three or, three or four of Spinrite 6's first users were using these download managers. We quickly learned... That, some, that these copies had gotten loose. And so we marked them in the e-commerce system to, to kill them so that they could not be used, they couldn't be downloaded anymore, and they couldn't be used for upgrades. But they were loose anyway. We contacted these people, told them about the problem. They, you can imagine how horrified they were oh, yeah. to know that everything they downloaded was being sent back to the mothership somewhere and being searchable in, in a, in a third-party database. So... Anyway, so we fixed the problem, I, and then I, I changed the way our e-commerce system works so that the download links are good for literally one time. The act of clicking on it kills that code so it cannot be used again. And if, if you don't use it within about five minutes, it expires. And it's, it's easy. You just get another one from right. us. You get them anytime you want, as many as you want. But we so you know that solved the problem, but not before a few got away from us. And those are the ones that are floating around the net, and you know we see them from time to time. So it's like, oh well, that's you know the way things go. That's shocking. Well, before we get to our um, electronic voting, I'd like to mention go to my PC if I might. Do you have any other anything else you want to talk about before nope, we do that? That's it. Right. Ready to talk about how to hack a voting machine. <laughs> You're going to tell the world, huh? When good code goes bad. Yeah. I'll tell you. You know what we installed? We installed, as we, when we installed the um, new board, the folks from uh, Axia, from Telos, uh, wanted to be able to get into our system uh, at any time if they had a fix to do, because it's all software. You, are you worried about this? <laughs> <laughs> I hear him going, ooh. But you know what we said? No problem. We're going to set up Go to My PC. It's 128-bit SSL encryption. Uh, we made sure that they uh, used a strong password to get in. We have absolute control over it. And I feel absolutely secure. But what's great is, in fact, I think I might even set them up with go to, go to assist because then we don't have to be here to do that. But what's, although I like it that I have to be here. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll leave it the way it is. What's great is they can get into this system. If we're having trouble, they can get in and they can modify it. This is what go to, go to my PC is remote access done right from the folks at Citrix. If you're sitting at the office 
late nights. You want to be home with the family. Maybe you're going in early because get stuff done. You're chained to your office computer. Go to my PC is the, the, the key to unlock those chains. You know, you don't have to be there. You can get to your office computer anywhere you can get online and get work done. Sometimes people feel like, well, I don't want to work all the time. Look at if you're going in early or you're staying late, you're doing it inconveniently. Would it be nice to be home for dinner, put the kids to bed, and then, you know, check in 15 minutes, get some stuff done without going into the office? Or, or maybe, uh, you know, getting up a little bit early, getting the stuff done. Then you can drive the kids to school. You can spend some time with them. Go to my PC really means you're in charge of your schedule. You're in charge of when you're getting things done. If you're a small business owner like me, the ability to get into a computer system at any time, anywhere, uh, is huge. If you travel, the, the beauty of GoToMyPC is it's 128-bit SSL. It, it does NAT traversal, so it's very easy to install. In fact, if you go there right now, go to GoToMyPC.com slash security now. GoToMyPC.com slash security now. It'll take you a minute to uh, sign up. You just you know give it some information. Click the download button, and now you've got it installed. It's that simple. No configuration, no no port forwarding, nothing. You're you're now doing it. And anytime you want to get onto your office computer, you just surf to go to mypc.com with your secure username and password, and boom, there you are. You can send and receive email, run any program, access any network resource. It's fast. You're going to love this. Try it right now. Absolutely free. 30 days, unlimited use. Go to mypc.com slash security now. Go to mypc.com dot com slash security now it frees you from the chains that bind you to your office pc you know i remember we did this this is this is how long this has been going on on the screensavers we had avi rubin security researcher come on and show us this must have been six years ago how electronic voting machines could be compromised he's been telling diebold and the other companies about this for six years and it's still a mess yeah, um, the thing that appealed to me about this particular story um, is that that this machine was very well designed. You know, we we've talked often about the mispurposing of operating systems. Right. The idea of using Windows at a checkout stand in a supermarket or in an ATM machine, we because it's it's a huge complex massive operating system with all kinds of bells and whistles and every bell and whistle you have has to be exactly correctly designed or there's a potential for exploitation so when i hear that a voting machine is using windows or even linux i mean you know people say oh it needs to be open source so that it can all be perused well i completely agree that where voting is concerned, you ought to really have people taking a look at the code and and understanding it. But I object to the idea of building basically a simple application. I mean, electronic voting is trivial. It There's nothing to it. It's display some names and select one of them and record that. The idea, frankly, that you would use any operating system is is offensive to me because it's it's overkill and it's overkill in a way that can definitely hurt you you know i mean look at the the security problems for example that apple has had as a consequence of the 
third-party open-source software that they've got bundled with the Mac. Mm-hmm. Many times it's not code that Apple wrote. It's just it's public libraries that are out there. They're open-source, but we know that doesn't mean they're, that they're secure. It means that there's a better opportunity for analyzing them, seeing what's going on. But for me, the, the ideal solution would be a, a, a very small, very lightweight solution for voting where the code is also open source. That is, you know, many researchers have looked at it and, and tried to find ways around it, yet there just isn't anything there you don't need. So, I mean, there's just there's so many opportunities when you have a huge operating system. So, so what I'm going to talk about today is a is exactly that. It is a very beautifully designed, tight little voting machine, which which is the kind of thing exactly that you know I would recommend people come up with for for this kind of solution. It uses an eight bit Z eighty processor. Wow. Um, you know Blast the old Zy- the past. Yes, the Zilog Z eighty, which was a sort of a superset clone of the original Intel eighty eighty processor. It has a a sixteen bit address bus, so we know that sixteen bits gives us access to sixty four k of of addressing space. Um, what happened is, oh, and, and this machine is called the Sequoia AVC Advantage. Um, it is still in use in New Jersey, Louisiana, and other places. The, the machines that specifically there are, were, are version 5.00D, and they were originally purchased in 1997 um, by Buncombe County, North Carolina. They were purchased for $5,200 each. In January of 07, so after a 10-year life, they were retired. These particular ones, the ones that are no longer in service, were retired from use and auctioned off on a government auction website where a researcher at Princeton, Andrew Appel, purchased a lot of five of these machines for a grand total of eighty-two dollars, <laughs> just so, for fun. He just wanted, that? He just wanted 13, it for fun. Thirteen or fourteen dollars a piece. <laughs> That's funny. He gets these used voting machines. The problem is, they're in use elsewhere in the country. So now he has them, and says, "Okay, um, how secure are these things? Which are which? Which I've got now five copies of." which are in use elsewhere in the country. So uh, a bunch of guys from UC San Diego, Princeton, and University of Michigan, uh, and their names, uh, Ed Felton is among them, um, are their well-known security researchers, academic types. Um, they decide they're going to analyze this machine. Now, what's interesting about the machine is it really was designed by people who did, I'm convinced, the best they could to come up with a secure solution. The The, the total machine is this Zilog Z80, which can address 64K of memory. 
but they needed more than that much code to do all the different things that the machine had to do. So it contains three 64K ROMs, and each of these ROMs is divided into, into quarters. So there's, there's four 16K pieces per ROM, and instructions that the Zilog chip can, can execute cause various quarters, these various quarters of these ROMs, to be mapped into the address space of the Z80. This is something that's been done for years whenever systems outgrow their address space. For example, people may remember, anyone who's using DOS in the old days remembers EMM, the, ex, the Extended oh, yeah. or Expanded Memory System. Actually, I think it was LOTUS that, that I think it was L-I-M, wasn't that the acronym? LOTUS, Intel, and Microsoft. Hmm. Um, what happened was spreadsheets got bigger than the 640K that the PC could handle. The, the PC had a, had a 640K, um, actually it was, a, it was a megabyte, but the top chunk of it was used by the BIOS and, and video and I.O. space. So you're able to put 640K of RAM in the original PC and XT um, in order to, to fill it out to its full size. Because remember that Bill Gates fa- famously told us that, ah, oh, Nobody um, will ever need more than six. Oh, you'll, that's 10 times more than an <laughs> Apple II has, so obviously that's plenty. So what happened was spreadsheets were very popular. They were getting big, so it was necessary to somehow add more data space to, our, to the PCs. So you could then buy basically a RAM add-in card, which used a technology exactly like, like this little voting machine used called bank switching, where there's like a huge amount of RAM, and you could cause pieces of it, a bank at a time, to, uh, to be accessible in a certain address range that was within this 640K space. So you'd, you'd ba- basically swap in and out chunks of a much larger memory. You couldn't, you, there just weren't enough addressing bits to uniquely address as much RAM as you now had in your machine, so you could sort of do them a bank at a time, a piece at a time. And so the Lotus 123 spreadsheet, a, 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 an API was created to allow this to be done, to be accessed in a standard way, and this allowed your data to occupy much more space than, than the system was able to access at one time by sort of swapping these things in and out. So... This little voting machine, this Sequoia AVC Advantage, uses that. What it did was it took its 64K and one quarter of one of those 64K ROMs was its so-called BIOS, which was always mapped in, in, in into the address space starting at the, be- at the beginning, so 0 to 16K. Then any other one of the... 16K chunks in these three 64K ROMs could be mapped into the second 16K space. That left 32K for RAM. And so the first 32K was ROM, and the second 32K was RAM, thus making up the full 64K, 16 bits worth, that this little Z80 chip could access. 
I mean, everything about this is cool so far. Then they went one step further. Because they knew this was a voting machine, security was paramount, they made it so that it was impossible to execute code from RAM. They thought there's, you know, there's no way, there's no reason that, that, there, that anyone has a legitimate reason for executing code from RAM. So that's correct. That's right. Absolutely right. And we know what a problem that is for our computers. You know, I mean, all the buffer overflows and and running code on the stack and running code in data buffers. This is this is the problem we have today. And 20 years ago, when this thing was first designed, the engineer said, let's just prohibit that with hardware, something no one can get around. So they. They added hardware, which any attempt to execute out of that lower 32K, to to any attempt to fetch an instruction from the RAM, that upper RAM half of the instruction area of the addressing region, immediately causes a halt of the system. It just just locks up. It actually, there's something called a non-maskable interrupt, an NMI, which chips at the time had, that I think we, we still have them in, in our current hardware, that is an interrupt, a hardware interrupt that nothing can block. It can't be masked off by software. And it caused a hard jump into the BIOS to put an error code on the LCD display, and then it did a halt. So it's just, there was, you know, these guys understood that this kind of security was important. So... The, the researchers um, took one of these machines and held it up, held the circuit board up to a bright light. It was just a two-layer circuit board. So if you shine a bright light through the circuit board, because it's, it's just made out of, um, uh, it's not plastic, it's a fiberglass, um, you're able to see the traces on both sides of the circuit board. Typically, one side traces run horizontally, the other side they run vertically. Um, and so, and they knew what the chips were, so they came up with a schematic for this. They also knew what the instruction set of the Z80 was, and so they dumped out the three ROMs so that they could see what the code was. Basically, they reverse engineered the machine, but reverse engineering. Mm-hmm. Something which is secure shouldn't be a problem. You know, we've talked about security by obscurity. So the idea would be that this could be in the public domain and it shouldn't make it any less secure because you don't want to rely on what people don't know for your security. We've talked about that often. Plus, it's great to have other eyes looking at it. That that can be a real value. Oh, believe me, (laughs) what these guys did, I'm sure... If, there are, if the engineers are still around who designed this um, machine and paid so much, put, put so much evident care and concern in, into security, they're just shaking their heads. Because here we have hardware that will not execute any code other than what was provided. So no kind of code injection can be used. Okay, now we need to we need to talk a little bit about 
about the way stack machines work. Um, the notion of a stack was an innovation which occurred to someone, I'm not sure where, in the development of, of computer um, evolution. But, for example, my old favorite little dinky 12-bit PDP-8 did not have this notion originally of a stack. So when you wanted to execute a subroutine, a subroutine just sort of being a, a piece of code that many different places in the program might want to, might want to run. So the idea is instead of repeating that code throughout the program, you only have it in one location. And different places in the program are able to execute that subroutine. The idea being that the subroutine does whatever it does, and when it's done, it returns to the instruction after the one that called it, that invoked it. And, and, and by being able to go back to where it was called from, instead of, for example, always going back to the same place, if it goes back to where it was called from, then you can call it from anywhere you want, knowing that once it's done, it'll come back to you and you can continue doing what you were doing. So you need some way of knowing where you were called from. That is, the subroutine needs a way of knowing where it was called from in order to go back there. Well, before stacks were created, um, and the solution that the PDP-8 used was the, the first the first word of the subroutine was always left blank. And when the subroutine was called, the computer would put the address of the instruction after the one that called it into the top of the subroutine. So it would sort of just be stuck there. Then the subroutine would do whatever it does. And when it's all done, it would, it would, jump to the location stored at the front of it. And that would take it back to where it was called from. Well, that was an elegant solution, and it was the only one we had at the time. But there was a problem with that. And that is, you couldn't have reentrant code. That is to say that, for example, not only could the subroutine not call itself, because if it called itself it would overwrite the, the return address at the top of it with another return address, but it couldn't call any other code that might for have some reason for calling it. That is, you, you could never nest subroutines, which ended up being a, a real problem as, as programs got more complicated because it just... It, you had to really understand how what, what your program's flow was and make sure that there was no way that, that a subroutine could ever execute code where anywhere downstream it could get called again prior to it returning. So the innovation of a stack was, was tremendous for computer science. The idea was that instead of storing the return instruction in the in the code of the subroutine instead 
we would have sort of a, a separate scratch pad which would would automatically um I want to say grow. I'm trying to think of how to describe it. It, w- it would automatically accept values and return values in a in in a in a um, a last in first out mode, a so-called LIFO, meaning that if you put a value in, that's the value you get out. And as you take values out, they come out in the reverse order that you put them in, in very much like a stack. If you imagine, if you imagine the reason it's called a stack, for example, is like a, a stack of plates where if, if you put plates on the stack, the stack grows. And as you take plates off, you're getting them in the reverse order. So what happens is with a, with a stack-oriented machine, which is, what, which is what everything is using now, it's such a, a successful and popular concept that when a subroutine was called, the return address was placed on the stack. And the subroutine would do what it does. And then a, ret- a special instruction, a return instruction, would always take the value that's on the top of the stack, which would have been the last one placed on the stack, and return to there. So the beauty of that is that if that subroutine called some other code that ended up calling back to the subroutine, well, this all just gets stuck on the stack. So as the return instructions are executed at the end of each subroutine, the values are popped off the stack in the reverse order, and everything works. Everything sort of comes back just exactly the way it's supposed to. So, so the Z80 was a stack-oriented machine, and, and so the designers took advantage of, of its, its stack orientation at, in order to write their code. So the problem was that from a, from a hacking standpoint, it's not possible for us to provide any code because the only code we can provide would be in RAM. But we could provide pointers to code in ROM. So what these hackers cleverly realized is that there was spread throughout the code for this voting machine were subroutines, all ending in a return instruction. And they didn't want necessarily to do what these subroutines did, but they looked at the last few instructions prior to the return instruction and said, okay, is that useful for something? Is the little bit at the end of the subroutine useful? You know, what does that do? Well, it turns out that they, they wrote some code to look for all the return bytes. A, a, in, a, in, the Zilog, in the Zilog Z80 instruction set, a return instruction is a C9 in hex. It's, it's the, it's an, this, these are all 8-bit instructions. A C9 is a return instruction. So they found all the C9s that were in ROM. And then they looked at the instructions just in front of those C9s to see what those do. And 
what they were trying to do was come up with a corpus, come up with a collection of useful things where where they could jump to to the near just near the end of the subroutine and get a little bit of work done not a whole bunch just you know add something to the accumulator maybe subtract two values or put something somewhere in memory just little bits of work which were, were which happened to be at the at the end of all the subroutines all the various subroutines that existed in this code one of the cool things for from their standpoint about the Z80 is that every single byte is an instruction um it was back in the day where you know we had 8 bit bytes so you had 256 possible instructions and in the in the Z80 the, it was completely dense that is to say this map of 256 possible instructions was completely full there were no inv- invalid instructions there were no privileged instructions on more advanced machines like you know the pentiums and 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 power pcs and so forth they have much larger instruction sets that won't fit in a single byte anymore so many times there's areas of sort of ranges of instructions which are illegal they're just not defined they're for the future they, you know they just didn't need all of the instruction space and in other cases there are so-called privileged instructions for example which are powerful which only the operating system running in the kernel but not the user is able to execute so for example in in a windows environment or in a, in a linux or unix environment the user processes cannot actually do io you can't access the physical hardware port because if you allowed that to happen then users would have too much power instead you have to ask the operating system to do those things on your behalf and it manages conflicts between programs that way so so this is the way things have evolved but back in the days of the Zilog Z80 there was no notion of privileged instructions what that means is that any data in this rom that they had access to could be instructions even if they weren't meant to be if they were never if if they were just like re- re- regions of data that happened to have c9 for example in them then the things in front of these return instructions could be executed nothing would generate an error nothing would blow up nothing would would go wrong so what the researchers did was they found all these little return instructions and they analyzed the the work being done just before the return because what they realized they could do is come up with a stack which doesn't have code on it because the stack is in ram and we know that we can't execute out of ram but we can have we can have pointers in the stack into subroutines and when the subroutine returns it'll come back and get the next pointer from the stack cuz that's how stack machines work so what they did was they they aggregated sets of little tiny bits of work at the end of all these different subroutines into what they called gadgets and and a gadget would do a 
a, a defined thing, like it would add two values together. It would subtract one from another. It would perform a, a, a non-conditional jump or a conditional, a branching jump. Or it would do all the various things that programmers want to do. They were able to come up with little tiny fragments of work, which when aggregated together, created a complete pseudo instruction set. <laughs> And it was what's called... That's quite clever. <laughs> oh, it's so clever. And it's what's called Turing Complete. Remember, we've talked about Alan Turing, the, the cryptographer and the guy who gave us the, the Turing machine. This whole notion of computability, uh, Alan Turing really researched and, 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 and brought to the world. A, the, the definition of a Turing Complete computation engine is one that can compute... Anything else that a Turing complete machine can compute. So what these guys did was they defined their own instruction set, which was Turing complete, meaning they could do anything they wanted. And, and this is That's what I, I love. I love that these guys were academic uh, academicians because they really pushed this probably further than they had to. Yeah. But they just wanted to say we can do this. So. In looking at the, at the disassembled code, there were very few buffer overruns, but they found one. Ugh. They found one in one part of the file system that had been defined, and they realized that, that there was a way they could get about 12 bytes onto the stack they could gain a foothold. Now, that wasn't enough to do much, but they didn't need much because they were able, there was one, there was one error that they found in the file system where if they made a funky file, then they could get the thing, the code that was interpreting the file to put some data on the stack. This would normally never be a problem. These machines weren't networked. They were standalone. They had two cartridge slots on them. Um, one was the so-called results cartridge, which was their battery-backed-up static RAM cartridges. And the other one was an auxiliary cartridge, which could be, and these could also be mapped into the address space of the processor. So they, re they realized that they could put in a specially designed cartridge where the file system of the cartridge, and they reverse engineered all of this. Um, I think they said it took, they're guessing it took about 16 man months. Oh, man. So, <laughs> so, so if you had 16 people, that's one month. If you had eight people, that's two months. So, but remember, this is a voting machine in use today. So, so they figured how they could they could basically the the protocol was somebody the night before the the election where these machines are going to be used goes into the voting place um pulls out the results cartridge just a little bit to dislodge it from its mounting there's there's a there's a plastic security loop 
which runs through holes in the cartridge to, to prevent it from falling out and, frankly, to prevent it from being removed. But it turns out that the holes are big enough, you could pull the cartridge just out so that it's no longer making electrical contact. The auxiliary cartridge was empty because there was none necessary. It was just sort of an, uh, an, an add-on, um, you know, upgradable uh, feature, but wasn't used. They were able to plug their cartridge in, turn the machine on, and, and when the machine saw that the auxiliary cartridge was, was in place, it would load the, one of the files in the file system, which they had prepared. That, because their file was deliberately made incorrectly, but from looking at the reverse, the, from looking at the disassembly of the code, they had figured out where there was a fault in the processing of the file system. And again, this is so easy to do because the, even the developers, if you showed them that there was this problem, the developers could say, well, but yeah, but we're making the files, so we know how to interpret them, and we're not going to make a bad file. And, and they could also say, and even if someone did, they can't execute their code. <laughs> you know, because these are RAM cartridges that are in the RAM space, and they won't execute code because we made sure only our ROMs could execute code right. in the hardware, no way around it. So they turned the machine on with their, with their special funky cartridge plugged into the, to the empty auxiliary slot. You go to the main menu, tell it to load from the auxiliary cartridge. That allows them to get their special file in, which trips up the file system interpreter in a way that lets 12 bytes end up on the stack. And that gives them a foothold. Wow. They, those 12 bytes are pointers into existing ROM code, the end of subroutines, just little, just a little fragments, a few instructions at the end that they've figured out how to knit together. And that then loads additional code, which gets them into the machine. And once they get their, this, this, this um, corpus collected, they have the ability to do anything. They then, they then uh, the, the attacker pushes the power switch. It turns out that it's a soft power switch. It's a power switch which is read by the software, just like you know, all of our consumer electronics. You know, I mean, the, uh, an iPhone, anything you've got in your pocket running on batteries, you know, these are... These are soft power switches. You're typically not actually disconnecting anything. I don't know if, if people have noticed, but if you, if you do take the battery out, it takes much longer for it to run down than it does if it's just, quote, off, unquote, because they're not actually ever off anymore. So this is like that, a soft power switch, which then their code fakes this machine being turned off. It blanks the displays, turns off the LEDs, uh, blanks out the LCD. The one thing they say they didn't succeed in doing, and it's like, well, you know, we decided we did a good enough job, was they did not and could not turn off the LCD backlight. So, <laughs> so there was one little, one little bit of hint was that the LCD was still backlit. 
But otherwise, this thing pretended to be powered off and asleep. And the machines have a 16-hour backup battery, which was part of the the spec for the voting machine so that you could still vote even the event of a power outage. So even if the machines were then unplugged or if they hadn't been yet deployed for use the next morning in the next morning's election, they would survive the night prior to being put into use. So these so this code was there when the machines were turned back on they they exactly emulated the normal startup sequence. Now, the beauty is that they had access to all the ROM that actually does the work. So if the mach- you know the, the ROM that would do the normal good work. So they were able to call all of the ROM routines for you know, doing normal election operating appearance. And in their demo, what they did was once the election was over and the menu was, was used to, to end the voting, they took half of the number of votes given to the second person on the ballot and gave them to the first person. So they just moved them over. I mean, they, they could do anything, any logic you wanted about what percentage of what votes go to who and so forth. But just for their demo purpose, they said, okay, just to show that we can actually do vote stealing, we'll take half the number of votes that the second person on the ballot got and and subtract those and, and put them in the first person. And then all the other accounting that was in the machine, they balanced out so that everything worked. So so from from standing way back from this, this is a matter of, you approach the machine sometime before the election. You slip your cart. You you pull the cartridge. You dislodge the 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 good election results cartridge. You slip your hacker cartridge into the unoccupied adjacent slot. Turn the power on. Do a couple things on the menu. Turn the power off. Pull your cartridge out. Go to the next machine. Do the same thing. Go to the next machine. Same thing. You have corrupted the results from these voting machines, which are currently in use in the United States. Wow. Now, a couple of points. One, they had the source code. No. They didn't have the source code. That's the beauty. And, and they make a point of saying prior, prior efforts at, at subverting voting machines have had the advantage of of information that was not publicly available, like the source. They had no source. Oh, man. They they had nothing but purchasing five of these for $82. Wow. And this is one, the Sequoia machine is just one. There are other machines which also have been shown to be hackable. Yes, in fact, I don't know if any have been shown not to be. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's the other way around. You're right. I mean, it's, 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 the problem is, that I mean, I loved this particular machine because it's the way it should be It was be smart. Done. It's a tiny little 8-bit processor. It doesn't take anything to count votes, to turn some LEDs on and show something. I mean, you know, we had that back on our Atari video games. I mean, it, it takes nothing to be a voting machine. Yet traditionally, or, or I should say contemporarily, we've got Linux and Unix and Windows, God help us, and, you know compilers and and networking and so much so much opportunity for something that i regard as 
about as mission critical as anything could ever be. And certainly the stakes are high. I mean, there are people, you know, certainly, you know, not people we know, hopefully, but who would actually do this. Who oh, yeah. Would, if they could, they would actually feel that they had a moral right or they just maybe don't even have morals. I don't know. But they would think, hey, if I can, I want my man to win no matter what. Yeah. And unfortunately. Or foreign governments. or I mean, there are people with sufficient resources to do this. Absolutely. Yes. And, ooh, and that ooh. was the point that was made here is 16 man months is nothing. And buying five of these for 82 bucks from a government auction site, I mean, these are, these are available to private citizens. And it was, it was from having no information about these machines, they were able to completely take them over, build their own Turing-complete pseudo-instruction um, pseudo set, then use the existing code as their own subroutines to save them from having to recode the whole thing. I mean, the, the machine knew how to be a voting machine, yet they, they just they shimmed themselves in wow. and did it in such a clever way that they got around this fundamental limitation that only code in ROM could be executed. They just used the amazing thing. little fragments that were already there yeah, and knit them all together. That's the truly remarkable. Isn't that cool? That's just wonderful. Thing. Yeah, and that's so slick. Wow. Oh, and the other, the other thing, they had one more thing. They had a routine in there called pet because there was a watchdog timer as part of this. The ID being a, a watchdog timer is something in many embedded computer systems the idea is it's a hardware timer, and, and it makes sure that the system isn't hung or isn't misbehaving. And so what happens is in the regular software loop that the machine is in, every so often it sort of just it resets this timer before the timer has had a chance to time out. And when the timer times out... It, it, it also yanks on this the so-called NMI, the non-maskable interrupt, to say, hey, um, something is wrong, you know, wake up. Because the idea would be that the machine would have frozen so that the software wasn't running. Well, while their code was in control, there was nothing ticking and preventing this watchdog from this watchdog timer from expiring. Wow. So they had a, a little bit of subroutine they called the pet to pet the watchdog <laughs> to keep it happy. It just shows you how smart people are. I like it that these guys are on uh, are good guys, not the bad guys. Uh, well, yes. And, you know, these this kind of news helps to keep our politicians aware and our, certainly our citizenry aware that – that we really, we really need to decide how we're going to move forward. Are we going to allow voting machines to be insanely complex so that no person on earth can testify to their security? The new ones are that way. I mean, no one can testify to Windows or Linux or Unix's security. We're, we know in, on this podcast we're constantly bombarded with with serious problems in these systems because they're so complex. Yeah. Complexity is the enemy of security. So I say something super simple like this, which you then open up to everybody and let guys like this use this this level of of cleverness and say, oh, we found a way. 
around this. And we'll end up with something bulletproof in no time. The problem is, you know, we're still a profit-based system, and we've got independent companies saying, oh, no, our voting machines are completely secure, and uh, you have to pay us this much money to get them. And we're not going to tell you what's inside. Yeah. Well, I, I just have the feeling that we shouldn't be doing electronic voting of any kind. I really do like the idea of just filling Paper. in the bubbles with your number three pencil and and running it through a scanner, and then then you've got and you, and you keep all of those, and then you do you know you take them somewhere else and run them through different machines to make sure that the numbers come out the same. Although I suppose any counting machine can be subverted, so aren't we at risk no matter what? Yeah, I mean it's. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, uh, anything can be subverted. So maybe maybe the key is just to really do do this, which is you know do these kind of studies and uh, and get the word out and and work harder on making this stuff good. The code seems like it shouldn't be so complicated that you could write it without a buffer overrun. I mean, it can't be that complicated. I agree. So maybe we just need to concentrate on coding it. It, it. it is the case that it was our old friend, the buffer overflow. In one routine where it would have normally never caused a problem, where they said, ah, we can get a foothold, and now we know by using little fragments of existing code how we can knit ourselves into existence. That's just wonderful. Yeah, and failing that, uh, they would have had no way in, right? Correct. They, they, they could have said, they, they would have sat there frustrated saying, well, we've developed a, a complete pseudo-machine language using by the way this notion of like a a whole list of subroutines that's called threaded code right. Thre th threading is what like for example the language fourth was a, a threaded compiled um code system where the actual program was just a series of subroutine calls right and in this case these little these were little micro subroutines a few little instructions at the end of existing subroutines that they were able to figure out you know how to build a complete machine from but you're right. Without without a without a foothold, they would they would not have been able to get that. Although the system was clearly designed without this notion in mind. In the paper that these guys wrote, they made the point that that 20 years ago in '88, when this was first designed, I mean, nothing wrong with it being 20 years old. Uh, I'm you know I'm all here to tell you that sometimes the good <laughs> stuff is the secure stuff. Yeah. Um, back then. No one had heard of the so-called return-oriented programming. That's the, you know, there's this notion, it's called return to libc is sometimes how it's known, or return-oriented programming. No one had ever thought about that. There, you know, no one had, had come up with this idea. So 20 years later, this concept arose, and so the, the, the researchers made the point that something like a voting machine with a useful lifetime of X decades, its security has to stretch throughout its entire lifetime. They made the point, for example, that that cartridges containing RAM would have had to be a certain physical size back then. But now we could put a whole computer supercomputer system in what was a RAM cartridge back then. And so they had to be robust against against that kind of you know evolution in the fundamental computing technology too. Wow, just what, a, just a cool story. Yeah, really great, really great, fascinating stuff. 
Well, thank you for uh, bringing it to our attention, you know? Wow. And I guess uh, there really isn't much moral to be taken from this, except that we have to test these things very, very thoroughly before we even consider using them. Yeah, I, I exactly. I would say skepticism is, you know, healthy skepticism is is what you want to have. Again, the the idea that these guys are are performing this kind of reverse engineering, demonst- creating a demonstrable vote-stealing result using machines which are currently in service in the United States for elections, you know, that's got to uh, that's got to hit the radar screens of politicians and 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 the committees that decide, you know, what's allowable conduct, what what's allowable for um, for the technology we're going to be using for voting. Great stuff! What a good what a good show! What an interesting story. Next week we answer questions. Yep. So if you've got questions about this or other subjects or want to raise some issues, uh, I know a number of people in the chat room were saying, "Well, is IE8 really less secure than Firefox?" So we can, I'm sure, we'll get some questions about that. Here's how you get back to Steve: you just go to grc.com/feedback and fill out the feedback form. And Please Steve do. Will collect your questions and. Uh, We'll have some answers next week. You can also, when you're visiting GRC, of course, get some great stuff. There's all sorts of wonderful, useful security utilities, Shields Up, Wismo, Decombobulator, Shoot the Messenger, and, of course, Steve's Bread and Butter. Don't forget the great Spinrite, the world's best disk maintenance utility, available right there and only there, right? (laughs) Hopefully not at your local flea market. Not sold in any store. GRC.com. We probably should have been saying this all along. Do not buy it from a flea market. <laughs> well, you may get more than fleas. Yeah. Steve, thanks so much. Great to talk to you. We'll talk again next week. Thanks, Leo. Security now.